Well, this morning we are in the midst of the Rise Up Sermon series. The Rise Up Sermon series is based around the understanding that last year the word for our church was health. And Rise Up is really the intersection between that idea of health last year and then now the understanding that God, through Jesus' resurrection, gives us a strength to be healthy, but to also rise up and do what God is calling us to do. As well, part of this will be you're going to hear sermons based upon growing up, which was last week, building up, which is this week, facing up, moving up, listening up, opening up, and reaching up. And in the midst of all of these, we're going to sense God's call to rise up. But the overarching theme for this sermon series is as follows. Very rarely in life will you or I rise up without a person or an event calling us to do so. When I have kind of gone to the next level in my own life, there's always been an event or a person or a combination of both that has squared up to me and called me to go where God wants me to go and to be what God wants me to be. But I also know this, that God through the scriptures and when they are taught and preached accurately and the listener or the hearer receives them in faith, there's something about scripture that comes alive as well and supernaturally calls us to rise up. It's amazing. What's one of the stunning things about being a pastor who preaches almost every Sunday in front of his church is how many times people will approach me and say, Pete, when you preached X four months ago, God spoke to me, and in speaking to me, it had transformed my life. Now, here's what I know. I am not that good of a preacher. I know that. But what I do know is, when God's word is taught correctly, and it's combined with faith in a person's heart, they will rise up. They will. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is rise up, building up. Rise up, building up. And in order to do that, I want to use an Older Testament book. And we're going to end up in the Newer Testament as we look at the Older Testament book of Nehemiah. What I want to do is just go ahead and begin to read, and then I'll give you the background after we read the first piece of what we're going to read from this Older Testament book. What you need to know, though, at the outset is Nehemiah was alive 450 years before Jesus, and he lived about 800 miles from Jerusalem. Here's what the scripture tells us. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, I want you to notice that the names we're going to read, you probably wouldn't name your kids any of them, but here we go. It says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. 
They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I asked, what happens next is that there is a long prayer that he prays, Nehemiah prays to God that God would bless him and allow him to rebuild the wall. The last verse of this chapter, of Nehemiah chapter 1, the last verse simply says this, verse 11. He announces, I was cupbearer to the king. So what do we have? What we have is, in the book of Nehemiah, in fact, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are the same book. They're one and the same. They're combined. But when the canon was put together in the Bible that you hold, they were separated. So you have Ezra, who is the prophet to Israel at the time of Nehemiah, and then you've got the book Nehemiah. Again, Nehemiah lived 450 years before Jesus was born. What has happened is, is the Babylonian Empire had conquered Israel. They took all of the people of Israel captive, and they moved them to different parts of the world. So Nehemiah is a Jew who is being held as a captive. He is a forced military refugee. Not only this, but after the Babylonians conquer the Jewish people, the Persians show up and conquer the Babylonians. The king that we're going to meet in just a moment, King Artaxerxes, is actually Persian. He's not Babylonian. But because the Persians beat the Babylonian, they inherit all of the regions that the Babylonians have conquered. The other thing that we're told in Scripture is that Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. It's the last thing that it tells us in chapter 1. That announcement is huge. The reason why it's huge is because the king has what's called a cupbearer, and the cupbearer is the one that tastes the food and drinks the wine before the king eats or drinks. It's not to make sure it's the right vintage of wine. It's not to make sure the chef has spiced the food properly. It's so that if someone tries to poison the king, the cupbearer dies first. And the king's no dummy. If Nehemiah eats the food and drinks the wine, he turns green and dies. That means Artaxerxes is going to pass on that batch of french fries. He's going to wait for something else. But here's the other thing. We know that the cupbearer of the king to the king did more than that. The cupbearer was the king's confidant. The cupbearer is the most trusted person in the nation. It's an individual who has impeccable character, a person that the king knows they can rely upon. And most cupbearers became someone that spoke to the king, gave advice to the king. Not only that, but the cupbearer's role is if the king is down, the cupbearer lifts the emotions of the king up. The role of the cupbearer is to be an encourager 
to the king. So now what we know at the end of chapter 1, we know that Nehemiah has found out that the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed. We know that those who are living in exile are beginning to move back to Jerusalem. But when they're getting back to Jerusalem, the city is in disgrace. The wall is broken down. And the people are very, very vulnerable to everyone around them. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up chapter 2. And we're going to read some more text that will fill in what's getting ready to happen next. Nehemiah, as we know, is the cupbearer to the king, and he goes on to tell us the following. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? There mu- this can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in an interview or you've been in a situation where, where, where when you're getting ready to speak, you go, oh, dear God, help me. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He says, then I prayed to the God of heaven while I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king also sent, an army, sent army officers and a cavalry with me. What a powerful story. Now here's what I want to say. Usually in a sermon... The arc of the sermon is you bring the big challenge at the end. But guess what? The big challenge is at the beginning. And here is the big challenge. It's this. Nehemiah has risen to the pinnacle of success. No person who is from outside the Persian people group, no immigrant, whether forcibly or by choice, would ever be able to rise to the level that he's at. He's number two in the country. Imagine that. He's a Jewish immigrant who is captive militarily, and he has risen to the level of the second of influence in the country. It's powerful. And yet, when he hears 
about the state of the wall and when he hears about the state of Jerusalem, what he does is he takes everything and all the success he has ever had and he submits it to God and submits it to Artaxerxes. Because you see, the king could have looked at him when he was sad in the king's presence and he could have said, Nehemiah, you are paid to be happy. Get happy. How many of you have ever parented that way? (laughs) But you see, Nehemiah is burdened with the call of God to do something. And he takes all of his success, all of his influence, all of his social cred, and he lays it right down in front of the king, and he cashes it all in and says, you know what? I'm going to go for it because the kingdom of God is more important than the temporal stuff that I've been doing. It's more important. I have a question at the outset of this sermon. It is this. Are you and I living our lives for success, which is temporal, or are we positioning ourselves before God where we sense that God is using us and we are committing to eternal things? Look, no one would have ever blamed Nehemiah if he said, you know what? I've reached the pinnacle of success. Actually, he was probably a hero among all Jewish people. Look what you can actually do. Look where God can place you. And yet he cashes it all in, in one moment, all of it. Again, the challenge for me is, and the challenge for all of us is this, is that are we spending our lives on eternal stuff, or is everything we're focused on temporal? If you were to look into the Newer Testament, you can't help but to hear Jesus' voice. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, what Jesus is saying is, is that if we are following him and serving others, we are doing it in such a way where we know that we are investing our lives in what is eternal and not just what is temporal. Nehemiah stands clearly as an example of this. He takes all of his success and he determines he's going to cash it all in to be part of the building up of the kingdom of God. I want to say one other thing. There is a false view among many who follow Jesus where people think that if God calls me to do something and I know it and I refuse to do it, someone else will. That's not biblical and there's clear biblical precedence against that. There's actually examples in the scriptures where if a certain person doesn't do it, it never happens. Doesn't happen. And I think Nehemiah is one of those. He is the only one 
who is positioned where he is to where he can do something about the situation in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the wall. If Nehemiah says no, I'm going to keep temporal stuff and I'm going to keep success, the wall does not get rebuilt. As we look at our story, what we discover is, is that Nehemiah goes before the king, but I want you to catch what he does. And by the way, there have been a lot of leadership books written on the book of Nehemiah, and they're great books. But I think God has a deeper message than just his leadership. What Nehemiah does is he goes before the king, and as he stands before King Artaxerxes, I want you to notice that not only does he ask for permission to go, but he asks for help. This is a big deal. Imagine how bold this is. King, not only do you want, I want you to send me your most trusted person, I also want you to send me letters so that when I get to Jerusalem, I can get the stuff I need from the people that you oversee. He's bold. I love that. But here's what I found in my own life. I will never rise up, nor will I be a person that's building up unless I'm willing to humble myself and be bold and ask for help. Some of us sitting here, you know that God's been knocking on your heart about some areas of your life. You know that it's time to rise up and to do something. One of the first steps is to ask for help to go to someone. Say, will you help me? I need your help. Because I believe in the midst of that asking, there is humility. And there's also the sense that if I'm willing to ask, maybe, just maybe, God will prompt this person's heart. I think really asking for help is a form of prayer. Make sure that we pray it. But again, what I want you to notice as Nehemiah lays everything on the line, everything. The next thing that we will discover is that Nehemiah in chapter one hears about the wall. It burdens him and he prays. Chapter two in Nehemiah, he goes before the king and he presents his case and he lays everything on the line. And then in chapter three, he tells us about the rebuilding of the wall. I'm going to read it for us. It's a little bit lengthy, but hang in there. Here's what Scripture tells us. Elishib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. This is literally the record of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. They dedicated and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, and they put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimuth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him was Heshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, 
but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. Skipping a few verses, it says, Uzel, son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And then reading on, it says, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-districts of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining to this, Jediah, son of Haremph, made repairs opposite his house. And Hetush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Shalem, son of Holosheph, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Hazariah, son of Messiah, son of Hananiah, made repairs beside his house. And above the horse gate, the priests made repairs each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shemaliah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, that's important, it was his sixth son, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshalim, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants. It's amazing. By the way, I only read half of chapter 3 to you. What's incredible about chapter 3 is that Nehemiah goes through specific detail about who worked where and who rebuilt what part of the wall. What you notice right out of the gate that the high priests and the other priests got in there and were working. They were building the wall. What else you'll notice is that one of the goldsmiths repaired a section And one of the perfume makers repaired a section next to that. Now, I have no clue what perfume making has to do with construction. None. Reading on, what you'll find is, is that the ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, he built the next section with the help of his daughters. But verse 5 is stunning in chapter 3. It says, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under the supervisors. They were too good to work. Even with the priests working, the perfume maker working, and some women working, they would not work. But you see what's incredible about chapter 3? And even the liberal commentary writers will tell you this as long as, along with the conservative ones. What they're going to tell you is this is that this chapter is absolutely stunning. It's different than any other chapter in the entire Older Testament. And here's why it's stunning. Everyone works, minus the noble people, but everyone works and everyone is important. Everyone. You see, up until this point in the Older Testament, when someone writes a book, it's all about Moses or it's all about Abraham, 
or it's all about Joshua and everyone else is kind of an appendage to the story. Not in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, every single person gets named. Not only that, we are told what they do. It's powerful. There's a shift coming as Jerusalem is being rebuilt. And it's a shift that it's not just about a few people, it's about everyone. And when you read chapter 3, you will lose track of how many times it says next to. This person built next to that one, next to, next to, next to. It's repeated over and over and over again. And it's this incredible shout from God that everyone is to be involved and no one is to be left out. You'll also notice the following. You will notice in the following how many times it says, and the person built the wall next to their home. That's amazing. Look, as a leader, what we know is, is that Nehemiah is a smart man. If I'm going to have someone rebuild the wall, I'm going to put the section that's in their front yard as theirs. How good of a job do you think they're going to do building that wall? The idea is this, is that these people realize the importance of building the wall. Now, I want to explain to you what the wall is all about. Without the wall, God's not going to get worshipped. Without the wall, the people of God are not safe. They need it to be built. And so what they're doing in the wall is spiritual. They recognize that. And because their own home is next to that section, they're going to do whatever it takes to make that wall thick against the enemy who will definitely be attacking. You see, if you look at this story, What you begin to discover is that the people are in this together because they recognize the kingdom of God and who they are are represented by this. I want to tell you this, and I'm going to say it emphatically. If you ever hear anyone utilize the book of Nehemiah towards the wall that's south that supposedly is going to be built, this is not political commentary, but I'm going to say it outright. If anyone uses the book of Nehemiah for or against that wall, you need to know they have no clue at all about the people of Israel and the purpose for the wall. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, if they utilize it on one side or the other, they're preaching heresy. It's not what it's about. This is about the understanding that Israel was the people of God. The city of Jerusalem was the center of the people of God. It's the understanding that the Israelites knew God had given them that land. So goes the land. So goes their relationship with God. So goes the city of Jerusalem. So goes their their relationship with God. And so they're doing it not out of nationalistic fervor, They are doing it out of the sovereign call of God that the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of King David, is in rubble and been destroyed and the wall must be rebuilt. You see, if you look to the Newer Testament, I cannot prove that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 has this in mind. 
But when he talks about the body of Christ, here's what he says. That we will all grow to become in every respect the mature body of who Jesus is. And he is the head and we are the body. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament that grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The other thing that we discover in the book of Nehemiah is this, is that as soon as the people of God make a move to rebuild the city of God so that God's presence would dwell among his people again, the chapter 4 verses 15 to 18 tell us this, that when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, they were going to come attack them that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each one to our own work. And I love the vision that Nehemiah gives. It says, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers point, posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Here's what I can promise us. Here's what I can promise you is that if you sense the call of God to begin to do something for him, where you're looking at the kingdom of God and you're going, I'm going to invest my life, I'm going to invest who I am in the kingdom of God, I'll promise you there will always be opposition. Always. It's going to happen. But I love the book of Nehemiah because the book of Nehemiah tells us that the attack of the enemy did not stop them. Instead, what they ended up doing was holding a weapon in one hand and laying brick and stone with the other. And they kept moving towards the vision that God had given them. One of the final pastoral things that Nehemiah does in his book, it's halfway through the book, he ends up gathering the people together and he tells the priests, I want you to get up and I want you to read the law of God. The people hadn't heard it in years. They had been dispersed all over the world. Now that they're coming back to Jerusalem, he has the Levites get up and they read the scriptures. Not only do they read the Bible and read the scriptures, but they explain what they mean. And the people begin to weep and they begin to sob as they repent of their sin. Then Nehemiah stands in the midst of them. And he says, now listen, the wall's half built and I know that you're weeping because of your sin." But he gives out that famous verse. But he says, today we're going to celebrate. And here's why. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And what we discover in the scriptures is that the people take a whole week and they throw a huge party and they celebrate God's goodness. And they refresh their souls. And they find strength in God. And then they go back to the work that God has called them to do. As we close out our time, almost all commentaries will tell you that the book of Nehemiah is an amazing book. 
talks about a man who cashed it all in for the kingdom of God. It talks about a man who did what God called him to do and he asked for help. There was this man who fasted and he prayed and he did amazing things and he led a group of people and he got them back to rebuild the city of God. He did all of that. He had serious opposition. What every commentary will tell you is that Nehemiah is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He is. Nehemiah is never mentioned in the Newer Testament. And yet the book of Nehemiah and who he was is a foreshadowing of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus was in the castle. He was in the kingdom with God. He was the most trusted individual by God the Father. You could put it this way. Jesus was cupbearer to the king. But when he looked down, he saw a need. And the kingdom of God was in shambles. And Jesus, through the call of God, steps away from that successful position and he humbles himself and he lays it all on the line. Yes, there was serious opposition to who Jesus was, but the amazing thing is he overcame it all. He overcame it all. Yes, it's true that Nehemiah is a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's not a prophetic book but he is truly a foreshadowing of the things to come that we find in Jesus. But what we know is, Jesus is greater than Nehemiah. And Jesus is here this morning calling each and every one of us to consider again, will we follow him and will we serve others? Will we be a group of people who look at the kingdom of God and say, you know what, Jesus, I am willing to follow you. I am willing to use whatever gifting you've given me and I'm going to utilize it to see your kingdom established in this world. Because one of the greatest mysteries about the God that we serve is that he always chooses people to work with him and to work for him in his kingdom. Let's stand together as we close. As we stand together, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes but open up your hearts. Take just a moment. Is God calling you to rise up and to be part of building up his kingdom? Do you sense that he's calling you to do that? For some of us, we are pursuing temporal success. Could it be that Jesus, who is the Newer Testament Nehemiah, could it be that Jesus himself will stand before us this morning and say, would you be willing to surrender all of that to me? Will you lay it all on the line for me? And will you utilize all of that for my kingdom and for the sake of my kingdom in this world. Dear Jesus, I pray in this moment that every heart would be open to who you are. That all of us would by faith attach ourselves to this story. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, rise up within us. Let us be a church, a group of people 
who is about building up for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name.